into another episode of Cyberly. I'm your host, Blythe. Burnley. even on this show, we talk about B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And we have a great show for you today. There's a couple topics that I've been wanting to talk about for a while now. So a little bit of a roadmap for today's show. We're going to talk about turning content marketing from a cost center into a profit center. And then we're going to hear from FreightWave's host. And I think he's hosting um, a bunch of different shows. You probably see him all over you know, FreightWave's now. But his show in particular and his email newsletter is loaded and rolling. We're going to talk with Thomas Wasson, who is really like one of the most fascinating people in freight, I feel like. He's a wealth of knowledge, so he's going to break down what's going on and all of the different uh, supply chain strikes or potential strikes that were either going to happen or now they're not going to happen. So he's going to break it down for us in today's show. He's also going to talk about that Freight Waves Freight Tech Top 100 list. And then we're going to end the show with a topic I have been planning on for over a year now, and that's Disney logistics. So make sure you tune in for later on the show when we dive into that topic. But first, let's talk about turning content marketing from a cost center into a profit center. Because most companies think of content marketing really wrong. They think it's too expensive. They say, I don't want to manage or invest in it. Uh, They say, what's the ROI of this one blog post or a podcast? And they mention that the barrier of entry is difficult. And another, you know, sort of common fears that come along when you're developing a content marketing plan, especially when it revolves around video or podcasting, is that we don't have the right equipment, we don't have the right talent, et cetera, et cetera. But all of these are really misconceptions because we should be reframing that mindset of thinking about content marketing as a cost center and instead turning it into a profit center. And that's really the crux of what this conversation is going to be about, because I wanted to show you a clip from a recent podcast. It's the All In Podcast. It's really, it's, it's one of my favorite podcasts um, that's out there. It's only been around for about a year now, but it's already rocketed to the top of the charts. And it has, you know, basically four very successful investors that they're giving their opinions on the you know, geopolitics and news of the world. But they were recently talking about this one sort of situation where Kim Kardashian, she is obviously one of the most famous people on the planet. Um, she has several businesses of her own, but she really got her start in, well, she got her start in other ways that we can't mention on this show, but she has developed that into several different uh, businesses and, and influencer-led businesses. So that's sort of the background of this conversation because now because of her, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, presence as, you know, a billion dollar woman who has the investing capabilities, she's now turning that into a VC partnership. And so let's go ahead and play this clip. It's a little bit of a long one, but let's play it from the All In podcast on why content marketing is important. Why I think, here's why I think this is so important. Go. I, I have a really strong belief that in the next 30 years or so, all traditional brands are going to die. And I think that um, what we're seeing happening right now with the with the power of um, democratized media, like us creating a podcast, there are hundreds and now thousands of individuals who have stood up and created their own brand and their own presence because of the content that they create on Twitch, on Twitter, on YouTube, et cetera, on podcasting. And as a result, they become the trusted sources of influence, and it's why they're called influencers. And ultimately, these influencers are becoming the brands. They can, like Mr. Beast launched a chocolate bar, became like the number one chocolate bar in the country. He just opened up a burger restaurant last week, 
10,000 people showed up. Number one, no, more than that, like 100,000 or something. It was insane. It was like the number one burger restaurant uh, opening, or number one restaurant opening in history. Um, Kylie Jenner launches a makeup brand, takes off, becomes this billion-dollar brand. Kim Kardashian launches a clothing brand, becomes a $3 billion brand. These are not just brands. They're businesses. And here's what I think is the most prescient M&A transaction of 2022. And you guys can tell me I'm crazy. I think the most important M&A deal of 2022 was when Penn Gaming bought Barstool Sports because it shows that every consumer packaged good or every consumer services business ultimately needs to be a content business. And if you don't naturally have content creation in your blood, you have to go and buy a content business or you are going to die. And that's why I think all traditional brands that aren't oriented and built around content creation as their primary differentiating foundation will not survive and will not be able to compete effectively. And instead, what we're gonna see is influencers and um, individuals that create content, build and distribute consumer goods and consumer services in a more efficient way, because guess what? They've got distribution built in. Distribution and distribution in, is the number one problem with all consumer services and all consumer goods. So I think in the future, all, it's advertising, yeah. all advertising and marketing gets replaced by content creation. And content creation direct to consumers through the, the social media platforms becomes the mechanism by which people are aware of and buy goods and services. Shemaf, so that's why I think this deal is so important. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's another one of what we're seeing in 2022, which is the stacking away towards the end of nameless, faceless brands and the evolution of the influencer. That is a very powerful, long-winded clip, but it comes from the All In Podcast. Once again, highly, highly recommend that show. It's changed really a lot of my, my business acumen and upgraded, I guess, a lot of my business acumen. So I 100%, as someone who's been involved with content marketing for years, have seen these trends happen in sports and entertainment first. And now we're seeing it really evolve and really take off in the B2B sort of space. And that anytime something happens in the B2C space, then it eventually and sometimes slowly evolves into the B2B space. But because of how rapidly all of these different technologies and all of these different strategies are evolving, we're now seeing B2B sort of adopt these things much more quickly. And you're seeing that resonate throughout the entire market. And so there was another thing that I wanted to bring up, and that's Forbes magazine just posted their inaugural, so first time ever, inaugural top creators of 2022, where they give a ranking not just based on your social media following, but they ranked each one of them on their entrepreneurial skills saying the creator economy is significant in both its growth trajectory and its impact and already having access across entertainment and commerce says jeremy zimmer ceo and founder of united talent agency we're seeing dedicated audience forging direct relationships with influencers celebrities and tastemakers who are innovating and delivering content people want in their lives every day these relationships can have a long-term value that can be very meaningful. And so when you have an, an institution like Forbes magazine, which you can kind of make the case on whether or not a lot of their different lists of what they, you know, that pay to play model, that of course is, you know, we can have an entire show based on, on that different strategy. But the fact that they are making their first ever top creators of 2022 list and listing their entrepreneurial spirit, meaning the products that they are adding in addition to having the social media following. So both of those two, let's put it put in, in both of those different conversations because we've talked about, you know, the rise on this, this show, the rise of the B2B marketing influencer on LinkedIn and how 
a lot of different influencers are moving away from some of the traditional platforms such as Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. And they're moving into the platforms that have people that have the money. And LinkedIn is absolutely one of those platforms. Now, on yesterday's Freight Waves Now, I talked about how organic social media is still one of the most powerful things that your brand can uh, that your brand can tackle, especially when it comes to LinkedIn and TikTok. That's where you have the most organic reach. And supply chain companies and freight companies are already building on these platforms. You know, of course, about LinkedIn, but I'm still kind of shocked to find and speak to people that do not know or are not aware that supply chain companies and freight companies are already building on TikTok. And some of them have massive followings over on that platform. It is not just a dancing app. So knowing all of those different things, what does this mean for freight companies as a whole? What does this mean for you? How can you actually use some of these strategies that are going on in the B2C world and use them in B2B? That's what we're going to talk about next. It means you need to start creating content as a profit center, not a cost center. It's not going to be thought of as sort of this risky thing anymore. Think of it as a profit center. So let's look at a few examples, especially in the freight world. Chris Jolly started off as a content creator. Now he's the owner. He's obviously the owner of the Freight Coach, his, his media brand. But then on the other end, he's also the owner and the co-founder of Broker Carrier. So he added a product to his mix after he already had this media attention. Speaking of which, Cassandra Gaines with Carrier Assurance. That's another. She had a massive media platform and then she built a product to coincide with that. And so now you have these massive, a big product and a massive media reach. You are already solved your distribution when it comes comes to brand awareness and getting new users to the platform. And then myself with Digital Dispatch. And of course, we cannot mention any of this conversation without mentioning sort of the media company that started it all. And that's with FreightWaves and their Sonar products. FreightWaves started off with their Sonar product and then built the media arm behind it in order to reduce their CAC. And now they have in several different reports that they have several that they have a negative CAC now because of their media business. So that's all incredible things that are happening in the world of freight already when it comes to creators in this space. Now, you see a situation where sometimes the product comes first or maybe the content comes first, but there is a happy medium where you can mold the two together and understanding that you know even if a, a bad product, if you make a bad product or a good product, it doesn't really mean anything if you don't have the media arm behind it, and especially a media arm internal that can handle or that can you know conduct a lot of different interviews and case studies and make social media content that's relevant to the audience and the problem that you're solving. So those are all different use cases that exist already in the freight world. So you see the shift happening about how to, you know, how these companies are acquiring new customers and new business, but how do you actually get started. And the common phrase that I hear is, I could just hire anyone to come in and make LinkedIn posts for me. And that is further from the truth. You should not because the leadership and or company founder should be the one that's being the face and the voice of your company. You don't want to hire someone that's going to come in and talk about you and pretend to be you on social media because then people are going to DM you. They're going to reach out to you and they're going to feel a little... Uh, untrustworthy about the fact that, you know, the, the person who has been making these social media posts isn't the person that I'm communicating with and vice versa. You know, the person who is on uh, pretending to have a social media account and then gets a call from someone who sees your post and you don't have any awareness around it, that's also going to look bad. So it should be something that the founder and or executive team 
are prioritizing and they're building it into their workday. Next and most important thing that you need to do before you start any kind of marketing campaign or any kind of social media campaign is that you want to add to all of your forms. I'm going to say this again, and I've said it in several different shows that you need to add a field to your website forms. How did you hear about us? Make it a free text field. Don't make it a drop down. Don't make it a checkbox. Don't lead with certain answers of what you think of where that person might have heard of you. Let it be a free text form field. Make it required. And then that way you get a tremendous amount of insights on whether they heard you on a webinar or they heard you on an interview or excuse me, they saw a social media post that you know your company had made. So that all of these different platforms and the ways that you use marketing need to have a way to track that. And the most cost-effective way to do that is adding that field to your website forms. I'm going to say it until I see it on more websites because I frankly just don't see it enough and I don't see it being adopted enough. It's a $30. It probably cost a developer or cost you to pay a developer 30 bucks to add this into your website. So do not take that for granted. That is something that you should absolutely add into your site as soon as possible. Now, the next thing I would suggest is to start on social media. LinkedIn now, TikTok next. Engage with people genuinely who are already active on the platform. Do not base your outreach initially when you're trying to get started on LinkedIn Sales Navigator and searching by job titles because what that gives you are people who may not be active on the platform. So you're likely going to have to do some pruning to your social media feeds in order to make sure you're following industry-relevant people. And that way, from there, you can start to comment on insightful posts. You can you know, leave an educational comment on somebody else's post. You can connect, send connection requests to the people who are actually active on that platform because then you know that you're connecting with people who are already liking and engaging with relevant industry content. So that is the next step that you should do. And if you have been on LinkedIn for a while, you probably, or haven't been on LinkedIn in a while, then you probably think of it as a super spammy, just um, people looking for jobs type of social media platform. And yes, all of those things can still be true. So this is the reason why you're going to go through your feed and you want to make sure that you have a purposeful interaction with content that you want to see in the future unfollow the people who are crazy, unfollow the people who are narcissists, who are, you know, crying CEOs and all of that stuff. Unfollow those people because that's only going to create a toxic environment for you whenever you log into a platform like that. Be diligent about your feed. So then that way you're seeing industry relevant content that's not spammy and for people who are actually active on the platform regularly. So think of it as a way that you are training the algorithm. Now, after doing this for a couple of months, you'll likely have a really good idea of what is working well on the platform and what isn't. And then you should be keeping a list of all of the questions and the concerns that your clients and your leads are asking you. Keep a running list of those questions because then that way you have a general idea of what you should be talking about on social media. Because if one client has those questions or concerns, then it's probably a safe bet that more of your customers or more of your clients are dealing with those same issues. You can also use what's called the KLT method whenever you start creating your social media posts because you don't want to sound like a robot the entire time. Um, But I would argue that you could make the overwhelming majority of your posts anywhere from 70 to 80% of your posts, you want to have them knowledge-based, 
make it about the customer and the lead. Don't really make it about yourself unless it really makes a ton of sense. And then the other part of that percentage base is posting content that, you know, is is rele- not really relevant, but shows things that you like, that you love. Um, also, you know, posts with vulnerability, like, oh, I messed up this product launch. I messed up on a load today. Um, any of those types of situations can be mixed in, but primarily make your content about education. And then I say this, all of this, it sounds probably like I, you know, I'm overwhelming the people who haven't got it, gotten started yet. And I completely under that, understand that. Um, but that's where I would say that you need to really think about this simply. Start simple. Build it into your workday. Pick one social media platform that you're really going to hone in first. LinkedIn is probably the best bet for the overwhelming majority of people watching this show. If you're trying to reach truckers, any other platform but LinkedIn. Now, with the caveat of that, make your post about the customer first. We kind of already talked about that. There's sort of, you know, this thing about LinkedIn where it's a lot of narcissism and it's a lot of, you know, just cringy stuff. We don't want cringy stuff and we don't want to be the purveyors of cringy stuff. Last final tip, what I would say is that you want to build it into your workday. Start with the first, you know, sort of, you know, uh, 30 30 minutes to an hour long um, of your workday. Figure out what you're going to post on LinkedIn. Post on social media. Craft the post post it up onto the platform, and then you can check in periodically through the day as you have an extra five or 10 minutes, maybe on your lunch break or as the day ends. That's how you get it done and still do your job. Um, Because you're going to have... your Things are going to come up. You're going to say, oh, I could just do this on my lunch. No, treat it as the important thing that it is and that it's building awareness for your company and it's building lead awareness of a problem that you solve so that in three months and four months, maybe even six months, the person who read all of your posts throughout that time period now needs your help with the problem that you solve. So start simple, pick one social media platform and really focus on the customer first. And you're going to stand out for the overwhelming majority of people that post the, the crap on LinkedIn because the overwhelming majority of people, I think it's something HubSpot had their inbound conference this week. And it's something like 71% of LinkedIn users think that the content that's posted on that platform is low value. And so to me, I see opportunity with that kind of a situation where if you just post something that's halfway decent, then you will then you have so much higher of an awareness to everybody else that's on that platform. So with all of the growth of influencers, with all the content and the freight industry that we're seeing so far, that is my plan for the overwhelming majority or a plan that I think that a lot, a lot of freight companies should be following and a lot of executives and founders of freight companies should be following. Because you have to ask yourself in a few years, you know, this, this, might, be imp- this might be super expensive to invest in now. It might be a little bit of a skill gap um, that you will get better at over time. And it might cost you know, money and time investment now. But you have to ask yourself, can you really afford not to do this when the entire market will be like this within the next five to 10 years? So that's my two cents on how to get started with content marketing and thinking of it as a profit center, not a cost center. So now I'm a little long-winded. Let's go ahead and bring in our first guest, our only guest for today's show. And that's Thomas Watson. He is the host of Loaded and Rolling on FreightWave. So welcome in, Thomas. I've been meaning to have this interview with you for a while. Pleasure to be on, Blythe. Thanks so much for having me on as well. Super excited as well just to you know be on the show and just talk a little bit about some of the fun aspects of trucking. There's a lot going on. Heck yeah. So so before we get into all that, before we get into you know all the industry topics that are going on, give us a little bit of insight on how you got into the world of freight and then eventually started working at Freight Waves. 
I'd say accidentally. Uh, the funny thing about trucking, how I started, no one ever goes in kindergarten and says, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a trucking dispatcher, you know, astronaut or something more fun. So I'm out of college, working a job. Uh, the, the person I was with like, you should try to apply for US Express. So I put in and I start as a, a weekend dispatcher. We're talking 12-hour shifts, 300 trucks, nonstop calls, 150 calls a day, and just getting your teeth kicked in. So uh, that was my first foray, uh, managing trucks on the weekend. Did that for a year, and then I realized, well, I know I'm, I'm decent enough, and the, the weekday people picked me up, decided to manage teams. So I had 55 uh, drivers, about uh, 55 trucks, about 150, 100 to 150 drivers, depends on, because they split. Teams are chaotic. Uh, putting two drivers together, angry truck drivers, is wild. Do that for about a year, become a load planner. So I thought to myself, well, I'll finally assign trucks to loads. Pretty fun gig. Did that for a year. Got promoted to a freight analyst. My corporate experience, by the way, has been the Dilbert principle. Just be good enough to move up. You're not careful. You get stuck. So do a load planning, become a freight analyst. And eventually, uh, in my ripe old age of like early 20s, uh, by mid 20s, I become the truckload network design manager. I was the one craziest person that they put in charge of helping optimize their OTR network within US Express. So spreadsheets. You imagine the matrix you see, or the grid in Tron. Well, imagine that with truckload volumes and lanes. So a lot of what you do is you're, you're trying to optimize and figure out how to put all these loads to work. You know, 7,000 loads per week was what that what they would chew through at the time years ago. And uh, it was wild. So that was the quick part. Five years in trucking, two years as a broker. Uh, went with Arrive Logistics, started as a carrier rep, uh, slumming it up on the phones. It was extremely wild and humbling experience. I'm not good at sales. Then I got promoted <laughs> to uh, account executive for operations. And so I got to see the area of a broker where you're working with a customer and the nitty gritty. And it turns out that there's a lot of drama when you try to book carriers. Brokers get mad if you don't pick theirs. Turns out you have to make money off the difference. So it was always a fun time. Finally, uh, get laid off with the pandemic and I become a consultant because I just knew too much now. And then I start, I'm the first person hired at Trucking Tech Startup AI Fleet, one of their first full-time people out of Austin, Texas. And so I did that before coming to Freight Waves. So finally, I'm rambling a little bit. Uh, I, I'm scrolling around, working at a startup. You get your teeth kicked in, but you're doing great work, uh, obviously. And I see this role called Enterprise Trucking Expert. And I thought, well, I know about trucking. I've worked at a very large one and I helped start one. And so uh, put in for the job, interviewed by JP and a few people, and the rest is history. That's a, an amazing story because, I mean, obviously you, you you have cut your teeth in a variety of different roles within freight. So it gives you a really unique perspective on the entire landscape of what's going on in supply chain now. And it's safe to say it's kind of a mess. Um, has it always been this messy or is there just more media attention on it? I would say it's always been chaos. Now, Chaos in scale. Uh, you know, all, all of these jobs handle exceptions. 80-20 rule. 20% of the loads are messed up. 80% of them, we don't have problems. Pandemic hits, you go to maybe like a 30 or 40% of stuff is messed up now. And that's where we're starting to see all this media attention because there's too much going on. Uh, the job has always been stressful. It's always been an if then do this. But, uh, you know, coming with the pandemic, the rise, the fall, the inflation, we laugh, we cry, we buy, you know, there's been so much going on that it's in the limelight because now we see the disruptions on a system that was really designed uh, running razor thin in terms of wiggle room. And so when you talk about that, those different systems, what we've kind of had in a sort of the national, I guess, microscope that's, you know, happening this week, we have the port workers that are on the West Coast that are threatening to strike, I believe. And then we, of course, have the rail strike that was nearly avoided. 
how are all of these sort of strikes, what is the crux of these strikes coming to fruition? Is it is it more on the port workers just finding the time to finally be able to demand that the, the wages that they feel like they deserve? Or is there is it much more nuanced to each of these situations? I would say, you know, the supply chain was running as it was uh, before the pandemic. But when the pandemic hit, it put into perspective the sheer volume. You get a whiplash effect. It went from, holy cow, the sky is falling. Now I'm having to collect unemployment because my brokerage laid me off. Ironic story. My brokerage then gets their butt kicked by December of that year because everything whipsaws back. And that hits all points of the supply chain. What we're seeing right now with labor is they've realized I went from basically potentially losing my job, real people get furloughed, there were cuts, uh, and then now all of a sudden you need me, now you're overworking me, and then, hey, this is not very fun, I'm getting my teeth kicked in, I have an opportunity with the great resignation, people switching jobs, all this, it's a kind of a perfect storm that the pandemic created. And we're seeing the lingering effects of these decisions. Port workers, uh, a great statistic, the reason the ports are trying to haggle the way they are, the technology, this freight tech we talk about, to put in perspective, in Britain, which is also having problems with Liverpool and other ports, between 1961 and 2001, the number of people employed in the dock industry, talking about longshoremen and dock workers, declined 72%. So the dock industry itself lost nearly three quarters of their people before we talked about all these problems. Dock workers declined by over 90%. The reason we see labor digging in right now, one, there's not many of them left because of automation. And two, you know, they kind of are seeing the direction it's going. So, you know, you're trying to survive in this situation. How do you work with this technology while also keeping your jobs? Because it used to be before containerization, which has been causing our rail and intermodal problems and our port problems, we had to do things by hand. So it's this perfect storm to kind of summarize to where each group of the supply chain realizes, I have more power now. I may not have this power later, Let's do midterms are coming up. Let's do something. And so we've seen a lot of those discussions, especially at the forefront this week with the rail strike, you know, hearing from workers that all they simply want is normal hours, you know, regular pay. I, I was listening to, to, to one rail executive that talked about how they're, they're per diem for meals. The national average or what the IRS suggests is that you get $60 per day and they are still, they haven't gotten increases in their per diem for meals when they're away from home. It's still currently sitting at $12. It has not been increased since the early 90s. So these don't feel like unrealistic, you know, asks that these workers are 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 trying to strive for. Can you give us, I guess, an eagle eye view of where you think the the rail efforts are now? Because we've averted the strike, but there's also, you know, sort of the theory that this could still, you know, be an issue two months from now when the cooling off period is completed. Do I do I have that summary kind of right, or am I completely wrong? I think you're right on that. We're not out of the woods just yet. We saw the leaders of the unions, they're making tentative deals. But this has to be ratified by the rank and file. These union folks have to take their, you know, they have to vote on this. So, you know, if they don't feel they're getting a good deal and stuff is reasonable as give me more per diem, as well as let me have more time off or sick days, you know, these are these are situations where it's a quality of life issue that if they don't feel they're getting it good enough, they're just going to go on strike anyway. Our public has been very, very lucky that for the longest period of time prior to the pandemic, if you had problems, you could just be replaced. Labor was plentiful. The job was viewed as stable. You could be a lifer. You could get a pension. Uh, now with competition for labor, labor is starting to exert it. We've had issues with uh, you know, immigration policies and other things have meant that the pool of labor coming in the U.S. that traditionally keeps wages down has lowered in a sense. So this is something that I think we're going to see more of because 
it's getting tougher. The pandemic put so much stress on people that a lot of people exited and they're already operating short staff. So it's, it's a lot of factors in terms of staffing. I need more people. And finally, the problem was, uh, you know, not to point fingers, but it's rough on all sides. Not only was labor who were rail workers getting hosed, the executives were hosed too. Precision rail uh, techniques and stuff, PGM, that they're utilizing focus so much more on doing more with less that you're backed in a corner. Let's say you decide to have a buffer in your publicly traded rail. You may get your board, you may, you may get bought out by somebody. There's so much pressure from investors as well because rail was viewed as making good money. But if you decide to purposefully lower your margins, people would be, you know, uh, crying, uh, crying Bloody Mary or something in the streets, basically on Wall Street. Yeah, it, it sounds like just a, a, a situation where it's almost kind of similar to what the airlines have done with their workforce. And they furloughed a lot of people, a lot of pilots, and now they're facing a pilot shortage that they created themselves. Is that kind of a safe assumption of what's going on in rail? And just rail is kind of refusing to hire more and, and train more people to come into the industry? Well, I think it's definitely between a rock and a hard place. We saw in the past years prior leading up to the pandemic, there were cuts in rail head counts by upwards of 20%. They let people go. They're working with less. And so uh, with the airlines, it's a sim- it takes a while to become a conductor, just like it takes a while to become a pilot. And so we're seeing this similar situation where the government's mandating you can make so much amount of money. You have to deal with government regulations, but you also have to deal with profitability, private investment, and the people that you're hiring. So it was definitely something where uh, it was a great idea until the system got overwhelmed. Both airlines and rails were used to operating lean. And once that leanness was stretched beyond its limits, we're seeing rubber banding effect where a lot of the labor and people they used to have are quitting. They're going to work jobs. Literally, I heard they're going to construction jobs and other ones just because they can get home every night. You have a fundamental problem if you're treating your people that way and they don't want to work the job. Therefore, you have to either raise the benefits or raise other things to make it more attractive because it's more competitive in other jobs. Other jobs have caught up, basically. Well said. And, and and switching gears a little bit to the trucking side of things, because trucking was going to be severely impacted if the rail strike would have actually happened. But because you, you've spent so much time in, in, you know, from the enterprise level to at a startup within trucking and your host of, of Loaded and Rolling, which focuses on enterprise level fleets, what technology advancements are you seeing happening at the enterprise level that maybe some of these smaller companies can kind of use it as a way to, to gain an edge, gain a competitive edge on, on some of their competitors that are a little, you know, I think it's like 90% of the, the trucks in this country are, are seven trucks or less, or seven trucking companies have seven trucks or less. Think of it like a Charles Dickens novel, A Tale of Two Cities, but instead A Tale of Two Carriers. Your largest enterprise trucking uh, companies have had automation in forms of uh, check calls and geofencing and stuff. This technology has been around for like 15, 20 years. Smaller carriers are still in the Stone Age, while larger carriers are in the Space Age. So the biggest goal right now for anybody who has those five to seven trucks or two or three trucks is basically trying to catch up with all the automation. There's so much more technology with Freight Tech now in terms of automating, finding my log problems, helping me find loads with digital load boards, helping me manage my maintenance and stuff uh, with digital maintenance stuff. That automating the back office is something that smaller carriers want to do because you have to catch up to survive. You have to have visibility. Larger carriers, it's the flip side. I need to automate more, but I also need to come up with a situation where I leverage my scale by uh, being more efficient. Driving utilization. When you have 5,000 trucks and you increase each one by 100 more revenue new miles per week, that is huge dividends. So, you know, it's kind of in the same way trucking still has to catch up and try to use more with less. It's so competitive that uh, having that ability 
we'll give it to you. A, a great example is Clayton Christensen with terms steel mills. They, they made electric ones in the 60s and they figured out how to operate at lower margins and still make money at each step of the way. Trucking's in a similar situation. You have to use this technology now because the status quo is not working. You got to pay drivers more, your equipment costs more, your fuel costs more. Something's got to get cut and the customers are asking for less. So if you were to start a trucking company today, what software would be 100% absolutely, we you know, some of the first things that you buy? Well, the fun part was I did get to start a trucking company with investment help, private investors. So that's that's the big goal first. If you have someone who's willing to back you up, go well in on tech, automate your route planning, mm-hmm. automate everything, change the way that you fundamentally interact with the driver. You don't need everybody, one person at each department. You can train them and do more with less because you have that technology. We're talking a new business model. If I'm a small carrier and I'm just starting with my savings, I want to get a truck, but I need to, I need to basically sign up for a few load boards. Uh, things like Emerge is so powerful just because it gives people the access. Usually a Home Depot or a Procter & Gamble wouldn't even look at you unless you're sat on your MCD for like three years and you have a few hundred trucks. So trying to gain access for a small carrier, trying to figure out how to put this technology to use. Guys at LogRock are literally uh, figuring out how to do machine learning and other concepts to figure out if you've messed up your logs. If you can make your life easier on the small level, you have a chance because on the flip side, large carriers provide value at cost, but they also aren't the best at servicing. There's too much going on. Small carriers, there's your example. Oh, I'm technologically advanced, but I also have that kind of ability to be, uh, you know, service levels are higher because I know every driver by name, not by truck number. And so we, we've talked a lot about technology. The, the, the Freightways Freight Tech Top 100 was just released this week. What are some of your favorites that, that have appeared on the list? Definitely. I got to pull it up here. We have literally 100. So there's a lot going on. Uh, I used Project 44 as a broker. Those guys were are pretty good. Uh, it's hard getting the carriers to do it. I remember doing, demoing Samsara while at US Express. Got a shout out to them. Uh, the the favorite ones, Torque Robotics. They have some really cool stuff going on through uh, Daimler. Getting really excited about Emerge, obviously, with the RFP stuff. Flexport has some really great stuff in terms of uh, their data, and they give like free data on what's going on in the market. And then finally, shout out to the folks at Freightvana. I love their power-only offerings. I think that's so cool. Brokerage with skin in the game. It's not asset-based carrier trying to pawn off trailers for more utilization. It's broker deciding to use car- trailers to have that asset-based feel without having to fight other, you know, trucks for it. So it's really exciting. Um, I'd say one that I wish made it was my former startup AI fleet out of Austin. Uh, you know, they're kind of, they're under the radar right now, but there's going to be some great things coming out of them the next year or two. All great solutions, all great. I mean, obviously, if you make the top 100, you're probably doing something right in the space. Now, now you serve on a variety of roles within Freight Waves. What's your favorite part of the job? I think just talking to people. Uh, this supply chain is so fractured. Um, I used to joke when I worked at US Express and Arrive, I just love getting to explain concepts. And if someone can learn something, I- I've done my job. This job is so complicated. Every part of the supply chain doesn't like to talk to each other. They they rarely like to share data. Even if you're in a trucking company or a brokerage, they keep it secret for some reason. And so uh, being able to talk to people and then having people give me feedback saying, hey, I didn't think about this before. This is actually important. Uh, I, I really like the value part. To me, it's like teaching. I came from a family of teachers. And so I feel like I have the best job in the world getting to talk about some of my sufferings so others hopefully don't repeat what I had to deal with. <laughs> well, Thomas, we got a, a couple more questions. So uh, favorite supply chain fact, and then where can folks follow you so that they can learn more uh, about everything that's up in that brain of yours? 
favorite ones were 70% of all goods were on like road transportation. I think we're up to like $800 billion now. I, I think that people really didn't pay attention to how important it was for trucking and how lucky we are to not only have people willing to go out on the road for three to four weeks. It's Driver Appreciation Week, by the way. So shout out to everybody who's out there. You know, we take it for granted that there are people who are willing. If you look at my room here, this is actually very much larger than the inside of the cab. Let's take this by a third, actually. We can probably box this out. And you live in that. You have barely enough room. You're stuck at truck stops. You're eating all this, you know, pockets. But you got to pay to go to the bathroom sometimes. You got to pay for a shower sometimes. Like, just, it's so phenomenal and so crazy to think that this underrepresented part of the supply chain literally is like the circulatory system of our economy. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Now, where can folks follow more of your work and, you know, follow Loaded and Rolling, all that good stuff? Definitely. So, tv.freightwaves.com slash loaded and rolling. Usually every Tuesday at 1 p.m., we're going to have some more folks coming on. Bi-weekly newsletter. It's like Spaceballs, loaded and rolling, the newsletter. So every <laughs> Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m. and Saturday at 11 a.m. Give you something to read on the weekend as well as not bothering you during the middle of the week. But definitely recommend people give it a subscribe. Check it out. I'm sometimes active on LinkedIn and then uh, I'll be on Sirius every once in a while, either with Grace or actually getting to host it. So uh, I get around a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's all good stuff because like I said, you have a wealth of knowledge in that brain of yours. So I love having these conversations. I wish we had more time, but appreciate all of the work that you've been doing and all the insights that you gave to us today on all the complexities of what's going on in the world of supply chain. So appreciate your time again, Thomas, and hopefully we'll have you back on in the future. Thanks again. Absolutely. All right, well, we've got... The main two topics that we've got kind of, you know, done and completed now, we're moving on to the final topic. And I am so excited to talk about this because it's Disney Logistics. And I feel like it's the perfect time um, to really bring this conversation to light because we have probably about 20 more minutes um, that we can really dive into my favorite Disney Logistics facts. And now, for folks who may, I mean, probably no one knows this, but uh, back before I started my entrepreneurial journey, I actually had a job at Disney. I'm born and raised in Jacksonville. I live about two hours from the parks. So I grew up going to Disney you know, all the time. I'm an annual pass holder now. So I, I go more often than I'd like to admit, um, especially when checking my bank account after each one of these tips, but or each one of these trips. But I still have my little name tag. I don't know if you guys can see that, but I worked for, um, I worked for them for a very very short time until some life circumstances came up. You can actually see my little training badge is still on there, earning my ears. And um, I never actually completed my training because some life emergencies came up that forced me to move back to my hometown of Jacksonville. So I was my dream was crushed. This was probably like 15 years ago that this happened. Um, but it was also the the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back that, well, if I can't work at the dream company, then I'm just going to start my own company. So it led me on the path to where I'm talking to you guys here today. I'm working in logistics. And so I finally get to mold both of these worlds together in finding out or giving you guys some of my favorite Disney logistics facts. So I wanted to kind of, I guess, preface this conversation that, you know, I've had this running list for a while, um, but trying to find somebody from Disney, the company itself, to talk about these things um, has been a little challenging um, and challenging in a way that I've gotten no response whatsoever. So I have just been collecting these notes from the past year. Anytime I see a social media post from Disney or I see something related in some of their documentaries, I make a note of it. I write down the timestamp. And so that is what we are going to be showing you today. So here are my favorite fun facts about the happiest place on earth. 
and how they handle logistics. And the first one I want to talk about is Walt was Walt Disney. I, I'm going to refer to him by a first name basis a lot in this conversation. Um, but Walt was a big transportation nerd. He was really, that, that, that's why anytime you see a park, you can see predominantly featured a train in every single park. So he was a big transportation nerd. And he was also with each park design, he was really, it, he was really sort of challenging his staff to look at things and the Imagineers and the cast members to look at things from an eagle-eyed lens. So tell me what the entire park looks like. Then I want you to zoom in and I want you to tell me what the land within that park looks like. How are people traveling to and from the park? And then I want you to zoom in even more. What does the street level look like for somebody that's in the park? And then I want you to zoom in even more and tell me what does the front of the housing and the buildings and the structures look like? When you zoom into the doorknob, what does the doorknob look like? What does the mailbox look like? When you open up that door, what does the house look like in inside of that place or you know the house or the building? What does it look like inside? So he really was about having this giant vision, but then all the way down to the details. So the devil's always in the details, right? So that's how he really prioritized a lot of these different parks um, as far as the storytelling brand is concerned. And so from Disney Plus, they have a show called Behind the Attraction. One of the episodes is Trains, Trams, and Monorails. And so during this documentary, it was a really great sort of look at how they think about how people get to the park, how they leave the park, what their experience is like during the entire process. And one of those big transportation methods is the monorail. Now, the monorail was the first monorail that was brought over in the Western Hemisphere, not just in the United States, but what was responsible for seeing a monorail. Or he was on a family trip over in Germany and he saw a monorail were operating and he saw that technology and he brought it over to the first park over in Disneyland. Um, but so not only did they bring that first monorail over to the West Coast, but then they also brought that plan, that monorail plan, and featured it prominently whenever they were building Disney World over in Orlando. So I want to play a clip from that shipping the monorail beams that are responsible for holding up the monorail itself. So let's play that clip. And with that, it was all systems go for construction of this revolutionary hotel, much of which was constructed off-site. And we're not talking from the monorail factory down the road. We're shipping monorail beams from Tacoma, Washington to uh, Florida, cross country. These things were 65 feet long. They were so long that they had to get three railroad cars uh, in order to ship them. The two ends were put on the front car and the third car. The middle car was an idler. So that allowed them to go around the corners. They were going around a corner someplace in the mid Midwest and they just rolled that. Because these things weighed 20 tons. They were heavy. They went around too fast, I guess, and we lost one. Now, that's one of my favorite clips from that episode. Go watch the full one because it's full of just different transportation factoids. But Disney continues to this day to invest in, because the monorails were built back in the 70s, but Disney continues to invest in new transportation concepts. Uh, they, they typically have, you know, boats and uh, they have, mon of course, the monorails, but then they also have buses. They have the new minivans, which are kind of like the lift cars, but they look like mini mouse. And so they, they have all of these different transportation options. But another one that they just added to the mix 
was the Skyliner. And so side note, the Disney blogger caught this image of one of the gondolas that were traveling to and from Disney. Now, the, the Skyliner is essentially one of those things that you know can take you up in the air. They call it the Skyliner. So it's the gondolas that go from different parks and different hotels, and they take guests to and from. It's incredibly efficient um, as far as you know transporting guests to and from, especially when it comes to just the giant landscape of how large Disney World is. They are the size of San Francisco, twice the size of Manhattan. And so it, you have to be able to optimize that part of the journey for the for all of your different customers because it's a lot of frustration. You feel like you're waiting in line a ton, to, you know, whether it's to get into the park or to, you know, get on the monorail to get into the park. So there's all these different transportation options in order to help alleviate some of that congestion. And another one of the cool ways that they do this is in their parking garage system. So places like Disney Springs, for example, which is kind of like the free version of like Disney shopping experience. It used to, I forget what it used to be called. Downtown Disney is what it used to be called, but now it's called Disney Springs. And so um, they have these different parking garages. And you know, when you arrive at a parking garage and you see the counter that's outside and you're not exactly sure how they actually come up with that number. Are they manually counting? Are they using cameras to count? And it's kind of a combination of technology and not kind of a combination of technology is powered by technology that is inside of these parking garages that is able to give you an accurate count of not only the amount of spaces that are in a garage, but which floor level and which lane in the floor level has open spots for you to park. Because if you think about it, you want to make that process as easy as possible. Whenever someone is arriving to your garage, you want to make sure. And so if you're watching on the screen, you can kind of see these, these rods that are hanging down from the ceiling of the parking garage. And they either have a green that, it, that signifies that it's an empty space, or they have red, which signifies that that space is taken. They have a counter on each one of the lanes that tells you how many spots are actually open. So I thought that that was really clever because if you think about it, if you get your guests into the parking lot and you make that process, as easy as possible, then they're more likely to spend more money and be relaxed once they enter whatever kind of shopping environment or dining environment that you want to uh, you know, have somebody spend a lot of money. So they make that process super easy as well. And speaking of parking... Bio Reconstruct, which is one of my favorite like Twitter follows, he essentially uses drones in order to capture the the parts from a you know a very high level, an eagle eye level, if you will. But it also he has really great construction shots as well. And so from that construction shots, we can kind of tell like how far along you know before you know a new park is going to open or a new ride is going to open. But he does all kinds of these aerial shots. Let's show one of those images now if we have it. But this picture is from Epcot and it's such a rad shot because it's the entire park system. And so if you're listening, I'm sorry, but I'm going to kind of describe it to you. But it's the entire park system with the lagoon in the middle. And what they have is this, you know, called World Showcase. And then they have, you know, kind of the typical area of Epcot, which is around the ball. Now, past on the outside of the park is where they have different parking garages. So obviously, um, you know, different parking for, you know, guests and cast members. But what they also have in the World Showcase area is they have 11 different countries that are represented in this World Showcase. And so each country has their own food, has their own drinks, has their own sort of cultural, you know, design that's inspired from their country as far as the building design and the, you know, just how that certain area looks. 
So they have all of these different functionalities, but then the extra stuff that they have is that they have you know employees that are working in that country. You have to be on a work visa from that country in order to work in that part of the park. Now, obviously, because of COVID, they've had a little bit of issues trying to get you know a lot of those workers back in town, back in the U.S. in order to to work for their assigned country. Um, but it's basically like a work partnership that Disney has with several different countries, eleven in total, that allows for you know, as as close of an authentic experience as you can get. So that's Epcot. And you can see at the back of, if you're looking at these photos, at the back of each one of these buildings, you can also see their own administration buildings, their own, you know, parking lots for their employees. So I just love that kind of behind the scenes look. So if you're curious about that person, it's Bio Reconstruct. Go follow them on Twitter because they they post a lot of really cool photos like this. But speaking of moving people from one place to another while we're trying to make that process as smooth as possible, a few other little factoids. Disney Genie Plus has also debuted um, recently within the past year to manage the flow of guests to a ride in the park. And now they also have entertainment within the ride line itself in the line queue in order to help keep that frustration down just a little bit. And now also, you know, all of these things are designed to help you feel like you're not waiting in line as much as you, I, you know, you realistically are whenever you go to some of these different experiences. Now, the next thing that I wanted to bring up is the tunnels and emotion of Disney Logistics. I can't really talk about this without mentioning, you know, the the tunnels underneath Magic Kingdom, which you can see in this image right here. It's kind of like not necessarily looking like the happiest place on earth, but this is meant for employees. And so for folks who don't know, Magic Kingdom is actually built on top of a first floor. So you're walking on the second floor of what is known as Magic Kingdom. And so the bottom is managed for trash. It's managed for, you know, employees that are going to take their breaks. Um, There is also a subway, yes, in the subways between or beneath Magic Kingdom. So there's a real life like Subway, the restaurant that is actually available only for cast members only. So let's go ahead and play that video. Did you know there's a Subway in Disney World? When you're walking around the fantasy-fueled Magic Kingdom, it's hard to even remember places like Subway or Burger King or Pizza Hut even exist. But it's a lot closer than you think, because beneath your feet in Disney's underground tunnels, there's actually a Subway under Magic Kingdom in the famous Utilidors. While you can see the Subway on Google Maps, the sandwich shop is not accessible to guests as it's only available to cast members. Tell us if you knew this. Follow Disney Vlog for more. Now, the next clip that I want to bring up when we talk about tunnels and emotions that Disney is trying to convey, they also want to be a memory maker for your trip. So they use what's called smellitzers. And I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, but I think it's pretty close. But to give it different experiences throughout the parks based on the smell. Let's play the video. Do you know what gives Disney water its signature scent and why they use it? Disney wants the water to smell differently because scent is the strongest sense tied to memory. Disney adds a chemical called bromine to the water because the smell is noticeably different from things you commonly find in your everyday life like public pools. The chemical is also better at killing bacteria than chlorine, yet safer when it comes in contact with skin and clothing. Can you smell these videos through the screen? Now, speaking of emotions and speaking of conveying those memories whenever you're at a Disney park, they also plan for Christmas. A Christmas is a huge part of the Disney experience. They plan for Christmas year round. And they posted this video exactly at the six month mark of this year, talking about all of the different ornaments and the things that go into the process of the logistics of a Disney Christmas. Let's play the clip. 
Happy halfway to the holidays at the warehouse we celebrate every day. With 79,000 ornaments on Main Street, we have various sizes of ornaments throughout the park, starting with our smallest ornament, which was a 30 millimeter, up to our largest ornament, which is a 340 millimeter. On Main Street alone, we use 178,000 yards of ribbon. That totals 1.4 miles, and that 178,000 yards make a total of 800 bows. We have over 110,000 light bulbs and over 11,000 strands of mini lights. And just when you think all the holiday magic is done, that's when we start all our fun. So that is one aspect of the Disney logistics when it comes around Christmas time, but they want to, you know, they, they want to make sure that they affect your eyes. They want to make sure that they affect, you know, your, your sense of smell and, and your experience of what's going on in the park. And speaking of eyes, let's show a clip of how they like to, you know, connect eyes to memory as well. Disney controls our minds like a Jedi by changing our perception of the color of the sky and plants in the theme parks. There's a specific hue of red concrete that is commonly used around Disney's theme parks that make the grass look greener and the sky look bluer by wearing out the red receptors in your eyes. Kodak, the first major sponsor of Walt Disney World, performed a study to find the perfect color that would absorb sunlight, blend into the natural surroundings, and would make the sky and grass pop in photographs. What should we name this special shade of red? And now they didn't mention it in that video, but they also have what's commonly referred to as go away green, which is a paint that they put on different areas of the park that they don't want you to see. Let's play that clip. I saw where they paint doors, a certain shade of green, maybe. Yep. Apparently us humans, we don't recognize that shade of green and we don't even recognize the door being there. So that's called go away green. How did you know about that? I was doing research for, I, I prepare, Paul, and I'm always learning how to be better. Go away green, it's a pink color that Disney uses when they want to hide things. I am the Disney guy. And so I, as, as someone who goes to the parks all the time, I want to say that they absolutely, all of those things work on me every single time I'm there. I do try to notice the things that are, you know, I guess, seem you know, to go away green to see what they could possibly be working on for in the future. But, you know, speaking of green, it's probably a good time to round out this conversation with one of my favorite logistic stories when it comes to Disney. And that is the Liberty Tree. Now, from the Disney historian, the Liberty Tree is, the, is in Liberty Square of Magic Kingdom, and it's the largest living specimen in the park and the largest tree transplanted on Walt Disney World property. Walt was a big history buff. And so that tree on the property reminded him of the Liberty Tree in Boston and its significance during the Revolutionary War. Walt famously said, if all the world is a stage, then all history is a great story warehouse and the casting department rolled into one. So they loved when during the construction of, of Disney World, they loved this giant Southern Oak that was on the property. So so much that during the original construction, they moved that tree eight miles from where it originally grew. We have an image on the screen of what's going on during this process because the removal and the shipping process was also really unique. It's a 38-ton sized tree that they had to come up with a new process that took years of planning. And it was invented by these Disney sort of veterans. And I think it's Bill Evans. So it's the enter the ingenuity 
of Walt's personal handpicked landscaper, Bill Evans, who essentially developed this trick where they would take rods and insert them into the tree so that they could lift it up safely and store it on a truck. And so that that was the process that they developed whenever they were trying to move a giant tree over in Disneyland. And so they used the same process over in Disney World to make sure that that tree is one of the, you know, the same trees that, or not these, it is the same tree that's seen in Liberty Square in the park to this day. So I thought that that was really, really cool story. And the fact that you're seeing this image on a truck where the tree stood, that tree sat there for close to a year before it was actually ready to be moved into the Liberty Square area of the park. So I thought all of those stories were really, really cool. I probably had about four or five more videos that I could have shown you on Disney Logistics, but we'll save that for a part two. I hope you guys enjoyed this show. If you like to see more of my work, head on over to everythingislogistics.com. You can find all my socials and stories and stuff there. Uh, but until then, we will see you right back here next week, Thursday, 2 p.m. for another episode of Cyberly.